Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today is Dr. Kidd. Dr. Kidd, welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, it's always uh, it's always great to, to chat with you, whether over uh, over here or uh, on, on the podcast or over email. So I appreciate it. Uh, can you uh, just catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and what are you working on uh, project-wise? Well, uh, 2019 is a pretty busy year for me publishing-wise. Um, we're going to talk about this American History textbook that I've just come out with, um, but I've got a couple more books coming out this year. Uh, one is called Who is an Evangelical? Um, that's getting into the whole debate about what the word evangelical means and how it's been watered down and, and politicized in the past 30 or 40 years. Uh, and then I have an overview of American religious history that's coming out uh, in November uh, with Zondervan. That's uh, just a broad overview of American religious history. My most recent project that, that I'm actively writing right now is uh, a biography of Thomas Jefferson um, that uh, is is a conventional biography in a, in a way, but it gives special attention to his uh, religious beliefs and how his um, religious beliefs informed or did not inform his uh, personal life, including his slave owning and uh, those sorts of things. So I'm, I'm uh, working on the early stages of, of that, and uh, Lord willing, that'll be out maybe in 2021 or possibly 2022. So, um, but of course, I keep uh, teaching at Baylor uh, in the history department, and I've also uh, recently taken on a visiting position at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I'll be uh, teaching some church history classes and working with uh, doctoral students there. Well, that's wonderful. I, I'm excited that you uh, are teaching at uh, Midwestern. They uh, continue to bring in excellent faculty, and I'm excited that you're uh, you're joining the the team there, and, and uh, excited about your your future writing projects. So keep up the good work, brother. Thanks. Can you uh, please tell us a bit about your book, American History, Volume 1 and 2, why you wrote it and how it's being received? Sure. Well, uh, this this book uh, was commissioned by B&H Academic, uh, Southern Baptist Press. Um, they are interested in getting involved with um, the uh, Christian college market, not just for theology and biblical studies, which they've mostly done in the past, but also for more traditional liberal arts subjects like history. Um, and uh, they thought, and, and I agreed, that there was a need in uh, the just the introductory American history surveys at Christian colleges especially um, for a American history textbook that was written from a Christian perspective, but that also brought a kind of professional historical uh, you know, learning study um, to bear on, on the subject. A lot of times at Christian colleges, uh, the, the professors are kind of faced with a choice of either using secular textbooks that are written by professional historians or maybe using kind of popular histories written by Christians, but that, that uh, in my view, sometimes tend to overstate, like, uh, you know, how many of the founding fathers are born again and th- things like that, um, and, and really try to push the kind of Christian America um, angle. And so um, we thought that there would be an opportunity there for uh, a kind of middle way, a third way um, type of textbook that that is written from a 
Christian worldview uh, and certainly gives a lot of attention, including through uh, contemporary America, to religious themes. Um, and in the secular textbooks in particular, uh, religion tends to fade out after, well, probably after the Second Great Awakening. Um, the, the secular textbooks tend not to give much attention to religion. Uh, maybe like the Scopes trial, maybe the moral majority, but other than that, they, they tend to neglect it in the uh, in the second half of American history. And so uh, that's another difference is I, I tend, I, I persist in my attention to uh, a religion in American history all of the way through the present, um, which is fitting uh, with it being a Christian press, but I think also helps to account for America's pervasively uh, religious character, even through uh, present day, even though there's so much talk about religious decline in America, we're still far more religious than, uh, say, the countries of Western Europe uh, that uh, were so in, in influential in the founding of America uh, compared to England, for instance. I mean, America is far more religious still today. And so that uh, extended attention to religion, I, I think, helps to uh, give some context for uh, that that fact that, that professional historians certainly know about, uh, but often have not given much attention to it in their textbooks. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And and as I was reading, I was noting that um, you know you're you're taking a, a very theological approach, tracing you know the development. You even talk about theology in the book, which you know I'm a theology geek, as you know, and so <laughs> I, I really appreciated that. Uh, I think other people will appreciate that. It's it's a different way of. Well, I think it's a it's a very as you just noted. It, it's the I think the right way to do history, uh, especially talking about you know how America was uh, was founded. Um, one question that you you brought up. Um, what are you, what are specifically your problems with the idea of uh, you know the founding of America being um, you know Christian those types of things? Well, I think you just have to break it down to. Uh, you know, a little more specific questions than, you know, it, was America founded as a Christian nation or not? Um, because it, it operates at different levels. I mean, one on, on one level, uh, you know, the First Amendment uh, makes clear that the national government is there to guarantee free exercise of religion, but that the Congress uh, can't create an established uh, religion, which in 1787, um, to ever, everybody understood what that meant was that you couldn't have an, an official national church like the Church, the church of England. Um, so in, in the ways that people understood uh, religion's influence on a nation in 1787 when the Constitution was framed, um, it, it was definitely a step towards church-state separation and more of a free market of, of religion. And so, uh, you know, Christianity on a national level definitely did not have an established legal status the way that it did in uh, the the nations of, of their background, most most obviously England. Um, but that that definitely didn't mean that Christianity was unimportant in the founding. Um, and and it, you know the the kind of free market of religion that the founders create, I think, put. Christianity uh, on a stronger footing in America than it was in England, where the you know the Church of England was and, and still is today the the established church of the nation. Um, but when you compare the national histories of America and and England, uh, the the freedom that we have with regard to religion has made Christianity in America, I think, overall more vital, uh, more voluntary, um, more robust, certainly through present day, than it is in in England, where the Church of England. Uh, 
plays a very marginal role for everyday people in England, uh, where uh, you know, very high levels still, uh, comparatively, of Americans at least claim to go to church on Sundays. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the the freedom of religion that that we have in this kind of free market of religion that the founders gave us. So, I mean, you can see, and there's lots of other issues you you could get into. I mean, about how many of the major founding fathers were uh, traditional Orthodox Christians and so forth. But but even that that issue of church-state separation and declining to have an official national church, I think, shows that uh, the question of of Christianity's uh, official status is is pretty clear that that they were not going to have an official denomination. But still, Christianity plays a major role in influencing the founders' ideas about uh, government and virtue and morality and what the best kind of republic was. So uh, that that you know, those are some of my kind of problems. Is is that you just have to be a, a, a little bit more nuanced than a lot of the discussions uh, are in the kind of, you know what was Amer- America founded as a Christian nation or not? What that that question doesn't really allow for much uh, nuance. Yeah, I think that's really really helpful. Well, why should American Christians study American history? Well, I think that that for sure American Christians would want to be interested in American religious history uh, because it's it, you know it's your um, religious autobiography in a way and and uh, the, the church in America is always influenced by its surrounding culture and politics and um, social development and so so I, I think any of us, uh, this is not unique to Christians, but Christians uh, should be interested in sources of wisdom and, and understanding, especially with regard to the church. Um, and the the past is how we got to the present. So, uh, you know, when we're, when we're worried about contemporary uh, uh, controversy, whether it be theological or social or cultural controversy and, and so forth, which uh, churches typically are worried about contemporary controversies like that, uh, we always gain more understanding into those issues by reference to uh, the past. And so, you know, for instance, if it's if it's an issue like um, immigration and ethnic conflict and so forth, which is such a hot button issue today, um, it, it is just obviously useful and relevant to know that uh, these these issues about immigration have a very long history in America that in, say, the 1850s, the 19-teens and 1920s, uh, the, the the immigration issue was as big of a political controversy, if not bigger, than it is today. Um, and and that, just that fact and looking at how it played out, uh, I think, is a storehouse of wisdom for all people, including Christians, to understand how we got to where we are today. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's really helpful. You know, we got to avoid, as C.S. Lewis said, chronological snobbery, and you know, right. we got to study uh, history. History, our history to so that we don't repeat the, the mistakes of the past mm-hmm. where would you say was a major turning point in our history as Americans uh, that pointed people away from Christianity and why well I think that there's there's a lot of places that you could look and, and uh, I think that there's things that happened in the Civil War uh, about our, our inability as a nation to uh, come to some kind of common understanding about slavery and morality uh, was a really 
uh, jarring experience for many American Christians. Um, but I, I think one of the reasons that I think we need some nuance about the American founding period is that already by the time of the founding, there are uh, major skeptical publications coming out that are um, hostile towards traditional Christianity. Uh, one of the most obvious ones is Tom Paine's book, The Age of Reason, um, that comes out in the 1790s. And it is uh, a vicious attack on traditional Christianity and on the Bible itself. And Paine, uh, of course, had been the author of Common Sense in 1776, which is the most important political pamphlet of the American Revolution. And so Paine was a very prominent writer. Uh, and The Age of Reason is a best-selling book in the 1790s, so not long after independence and the founding of the new nation. Um, and it is, uh, in its way, as rabid an assault on uh, traditional Christianity and the Bible as anything you would find today. And so if if we think about the time of the founding as some kind of pristine, almost naive time of common acceptance of Christian belief and that sort of thing, it's not true. Uh, there, there were very public uh, skeptics at, at the time, Payne being the most notorious. And it's not as if he was just out there on a limb by himself. I mean, that, that book uh, sold thousands and thousands of, of copies, and it was one of the best-selling books of the 1790s, for sure, um, in America. And so there was an active audience for anti-Christian, anti-Bible uh, writing almost at the very beginning of the new nation. You know, I, I think that when you look at what happened in the 20th century with growing a growing role uh, for atheism and uh, sexual license and, uh, I think, cultural degradation starting in the 1960s, all those things are true that those were, those were problems in turning us away from traditional uh, faith as a culture. But um, this is another area where when you look at the past um, and, and see how early those kinds of voices appeared in American history, you start realizing that some of the challenges that we're facing culturally today uh, are not exactly brand new. Yeah, um, if I'm if I'm remembering this right, and and it's been uh, let's see, um, probably 15 years since I took an American, I took a history of American philosophy class. So so correct me if I'm wrong here. But um, you know, I think that what I remember from that class is basically Tom, Thomas Paine and, and his influence on you know uh, universities like Harvard and Yale and. You know these these places were started as uh, we know, like Harvard to to train in Yale to train pastors and and those types of things, and they and they started to go away from the influence of like Thomas Paine and and uh, and, and evolution, you know, Charles Darwin, and and just the confluence of, of those ideas that were coming in and assaulting uh, you know traditional Christian Christian teaching yeah that that's right and and it seems that every generation has kind of a new cycle of, of this I mean you know Yale was founded in 1701 really as a conservative alternative to Harvard because Harvard had been founded in 1636 and already by 1700 uh, liberalism which in 1700 basically meant anti-calvinism uh, was was already taken 
taking hold at, at Harvard. And so there were Congregationalist pastors in New England who thought that they, there needed to be kind of a conservative alternative, and that became Yale. And so um, it, it seems like we, we just go through these cycles of, of you know, creeping liberalism and then conservative alternatives. It doesn't seem to usually go the other way. <laughs> I don't I don't know why, but uh, but but um, all those things and so, you know, so patterns like that are happening in reaction to Darwinianism and 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 all that. But I'm struck again by how early these kinds of things start happening in America, where uh, at least to critics, Harvard had already gone liberal by 1700, and and so you know, well before the Declaration of Independence, and and so uh, th- those kind of challenges seem to be just perennially with us. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, what's your favorite period of American history and why? Of course, I, I find it all interesting, and I, I, you know, I think a lot of historians feel like they could you know study virtually any time period and, and find things that would fascinate them. Uh, I think for me, um, I, I find the period of the First Great Awakening in the 1740s to be uh, my my favorite time period, um, just because it is it's the time in American history where I think uh, unless you're you, you know just skeptical about about God's role in history, it's it's the time where I see the most discernible, massive work of God uh, in American history. Um, and even Christian historians tend to be kind of hesitant about saying, you know, God was doing this or God was doing that uh, in, in anything outside of the Bible. Um, uh, but boy, in the, in the First Great Awakening, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, just a powerful work of God, uh, not unalloyed. I mean, there, there's problems in the First Great Awakening. Um, excesses, uh, which seem always to come with along with true revival. There's there's also some excesses, but um, I think for me personally, uh, I identify I'm, I'm Baptist myself, an evangelical and a Baptist, and I, I just if I think if I could choose to uh, at least visit, if not live among a, a certain group of Christians after the Book of Acts, um, I, I think pretty close to the top of the list for me would be those evangelicals in the 1740s and 50s and and uh, the you know incredible missionary efforts that were coming out. Um, you know that it's the first time that the Baptists really get into the South. I mean, at, at a time where there are virtually no Baptists in the South, if you can imagine that. Uh, and and it's it's just an exciting time for for me as a Christian. So I'd have if I had to choose, I would say that's my favorite time. That definitely uh, bears out in in your writing for sure. So so that's awesome. Um, who in our history has had a great influence on the Christian Church as a whole? Um, I think that uh, probably uh, the one person that I would identify as, as being someone who had a huge influence, but maybe is a little less known, is George Whitfield. Um, certainly, in, in some evangelical circles today, uh, Whitfield is is a little better known. But of, of the three figures um, who are the primary leaders of the Great Awakening in Britain and America, it's um, it's Jonathan Edwards and John West. And George Whitfield, and I think of those three, that that Whitfield is the least well known today. And the reason for that is because Edwards' brilliance is um, is captured in his writing, and his writings are, are very well studied, especially among uh, Christians today. And then Wesley leaves the institutional legacy of the Methodist Church, um, which remains a, a large and important denomination, though in some ways it's it's strayed from some of Wesley's legacy uh, today. But then Whitfield's brilliance, and uh, if any of your listeners are not as familiar with Whitfield, he was the most important 
evangelist of the Great Awakening, and his brilliance uh, was captured in his preaching as delivered. Um, I, I, I mean, I think his sermons are, are very fine sermons. Um, they're not as theologically brilliant as Edwards' sermons are, um, but the, but they're heavyweight sermons, Whitfield's are. Um, but I, I always tell my students that I wish um, of anybody outside of the Bible that I, that I wish I had a YouTube clip of, it would be George Whitfield, because uh, he, by all accounts, was just a phenomenally gifted uh, preacher, maybe the greatest preacher ever in the evangelical movement. Um, but his sermons as delivered are lost to history. We just don't, we, all we have is uh, testimonies of people of what it was like to be there, uh, including very famous testimonies by Ben Franklin in his autobiography, who who was just stunned by the power of Whitfield's preaching, even though Franklin never accepted uh, Christ for himself. And so uh, that, I, th- I think Whitfield is uh, a character who sets the pattern for uh, British and American and, and in his way, global evangelicalism in the appeal to uh, people to be born again in uh, incredibly hard work, passionate preaching, um, rigorous rigorous biblicism in his preaching. Um, and he, he sets a pattern for thousands of preachers that, whether they know it or not, have, have come in his wake. And so uh, I, I think that's why I would I would want people to know more about Whitfield than than many people and many many Christians do today. And uh, that, that's a very good answer. And I would just encourage people to check out your your work on on Whitfield if they want to learn more. It's uh, very helpful. So thank you. Well, Doctor Kidd, what as the Christian Church in America should we be cautious not to repeat? Well, I think that that you know history doesn't repeat itself in the exact sequence of events, right? I mean. Uh, but but I think that we look back on history and we see themes um, and parallels that that do repeat themselves and and I think that uh, one of the things that we really learn uh, uh, is it, from the mistakes of the church in in the past is how easy it is for the church to become captive to the dominant culture um, and and get involved in uh, you know overtly sinful uh, behavior that people don't necessarily even realize that they're doing it at the time. I mean, you can point to the German churches, uh, most of them in Nazi Germany, uh, the, the churches, you know, uh, cooperating with communist powers and so forth. So we, there's some real obvious examples like that. And uh, in, in in America, I mean, you have uh, episodes, uh, most obviously slavery, where uh, a lot of the church and a lot of pastors um, endorsed slavery, I think, feeling like they were um, you know, on really strong biblical grounds, uh, when in retrospect, it seems like uh, a lot of what they were doing was just blessing the dominant culture, especially in the South, uh, to, to go along with what, in my view, was a, um, a fundamentally sinful institution, especially because of the way it was uh, based on uh, what the Bible calls man-stealing, uh, you know, snatching people away and selling them into slavery, and then the way that it was uh, also based on um, the indiscriminate breakup of uh, slave families, a very high percentage of slave marriages, slave uh, parents and children were uh, broken up in the antebellum period in the United States uh, through the sale of individual uh, slaves, Um, not to mention, of course, the the endemic uh, abuse and um, uh, sexual and physical abuse that went along with the slave system. It's not so much uh, a a point to, you know, wag our fingers at people in the past and and say, oh, we're, we're 
we're so much more morally sophisticated than they are. I, I think we've got to be cautious about that too. Um, but it, it's just that that we have to always be on guard um, in our current cultural situation, uh, realizing that all the pressure um, is to go along to get along. Um, and I, I think we see that in some forms uh, and recognize it and are, are vigilant about it in, uh, in the way that conservative churches are trying to hold the line on issues about marriage and sexuality today um, or uh, about abortion. But but it also, I think that there's temptations all the time of getting sucked in uh, to uh, uh, political causes um, that m- may at least distract us from the church's business. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've just got to always remember that uh, you people, if the Lord tarries, that people two, three hundred years from now are likely going to be looking back at us and saying, what were they thinking about? You know, and, and we may just not even be able to see it, uh, you know, what what some of our worst offenses are, because sin tends to not only drag us into things we shouldn't be doing, uh, but it blinds us. Um, our, our own sin nature blinds us to what our sin is. So I, I, I'm generally just struck by that danger of, of always the, being at risk of, of accommodating uh, the culture in, in ways that turn out to be sinful. Yeah, that's that's a really good answer. Well, we, we've kind of been talking about this question, um, so I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add to this, uh, but uh, in case you do, here's the question. If you don't, that's okay. Um, what do most people misunderstand about the founding of our country? Well, I think it, it, it does go back to my previous answer that we, we tend to have this kind of polarized um, view of the, the, the only options about the founding are that it was totally Christian or it was totally secular. And uh, that that's the way that our politics tends to play out today. At least that's the impression that we have. And so we think, well, uh, that means that the people in 1776 must have been that way too. And um, part of my uh, you know personal goal as a historian is to show that there are a lot of people involved with the founding um, who are just unlike anybody that we know today. Uh, so for instance, Ben Franklin, who I mentioned before, uh, you know, resisted George Whitfield's overtures. I mean, George Whitfield personally witnessed to Ben Franklin trying to get him to accept Christ for salvation, and Franklin would not do it. He said, you know, directly to Whitfield, I won't. <laughs> so uh, they, they were having that discussion um, in, in just amazing ways. Um, and so you'd think, oh, well, so Franklin, uh, and he called himself a deist in his autobiography, so so he must have been secular. Uh, and that that's where our present-minded uh, attitude towards the founding says. And uh, I, I don't I don't see any useful way to talk about Franklin being a secular person, uh, mostly because he grew up in a Puritan family in Boston, um, and he had uh, so much of the King James Bible memorized, and he knew, he knew it like the back of his hand, and could could uh, quote it from memory, and was constantly citing the Bible in his writings, and and he deeply respected the Bible uh, and and its teachings. It's it, it, but but on critical points, uh, he had gone heterodox, especially about uh, the divinity of Christ, um, and so that's one that's one of the reasons why he wouldn't accept Christ the way that that Whitfield wanted him to is because Franklin doubted whether Jesus really was the Son of God. Um, but if we think, oh, he's a deist, therefore he's maybe like one of the new atheists today or something like that, he's not like that at all. He knows the Bible backwards and forwards. Um, he knows the Bible better than a lot of evangelical. Christians do today. Um, and so he bec- 
becomes this, uh, when you see what he's really like, he's a very deeply biblically literate uh, deist, <laughs> right? So um, I, I think we, we, we just tend to put the founding and the founders into these binaries that make sense to us today, but they do not make sense in 1776. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really helpful. Well, um, here we come to a pretty controversial question and, um, you know, maybe I think it is a controversial question and uh, for, for a lot of reasons, um, but I'm, I'm really curious about your, your, uh, your answer to this one. Um, what character traits should American Chris- Christians look for in their political leaders? Well, uh, the, the founding fathers um, across the board theologically from people like Franklin uh, to more traditional Christians like uh, uh, Patrick Henry um, believed that if you're going to have a republic, um, and they, they believe they were founding a, a republic um, without a monarch, uh, but not not really a democracy either, um, that, that you had to have people uh, in office, but also the people at large who were virtuous. Um, and and when when they talked about virtue, it, they they would begin for sure with uh, biblical standards of morality. And so even skeptics like uh, Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, who I'm working on now, um, by and large took biblical morality as their kind of starting point for what virtue meant. Um, because, I mean, they, they wouldn't have known what other uh, feasible source is there for defining what morality is. And they tended, uh, people like Jefferson and Franklin tended to think that what what you really want to do is focus on Jesus's ethical teachings, but set aside the idea of him being the son of God. So even the skeptics of the time uh, sort of widely agreed that uh, biblical uh, traditional Christian morality um, was what you would want in political leaders. And uh, they, they especially believed that anything that had to do with public dealings, uh, such as honesty, um, such as uh, financial integrity, and th- th- these sorts of things that are that are going to uh, touch on the way that this person operates in office, that you definitely would want to uh, gravitate towards that type of uh, candidate. And so um, one of the greatest uh, advantages that the early founders had with, with the Declaration of Independence and the framing of the Constitution is that they knew, um, in particular with the framing of the Constitution, that if they created the presidency, that George Washington would be the first president. I mean, that, that was just taken as a given. And, and indeed, he was uh, unanimously elected by the Electoral College um, in his uh, two elections. And and so, um, and, and the reason why they thought that Washington was the right choice was not only because he had had lots of uh, successful leadership experience in the Continental Army, but uh, they, they all, to a man, would have said they would have cited his virtuous um, character, that he is, is honest, uh, a man of just total integrity, um, and, and tries to do right by others in all of, all of his dealings, that he lives out the golden rule, as it, as it were. Um, and, and so I, I think that those are um, uh, really good guidelines, uh, obviously, for, for us today. 
I, I think that that we tend uh, often to to uh, gravitate towards people who can be uh, get to, who who have a compelling public personality uh, in in very different ways. You know, some, some both uh, Barack Obama, Obama and Donald Trump. You know, ha- to their base have this really compelling, appealing, even entertaining kind of public persona. Um, and I can certainly understand uh, gravitating towards towards those. It's better than someone who's just boring. But I, th- I think the founders would would say that um, if 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 given the choice between someone who has a long track record of uh, virtuous behavior and then and then someone who was what they would call a demagogue, uh, you know, who, who had that that kind of way of stirring up a, a their their constituency emotionally and through appeals to passion, that that you definitely want to head in the direction of uh, the the person of uh, consistent long term uh, virtue and integrity. Yeah, that's that's really good. So so as Christians, what we should look for is does this person is this person a person of uh, of integrity? Do they uh, hold to values that that we could support? Um, yeah, I I think I tend to think of it as it's sort of it you know half of uh, of what you want. I mean, you want them to be all the way a person of integrity, but but that's about half of what we're looking for. And that part of it, I think, is tends to be relatively nonpartisan. Uh, I mean, I think you, you know we can all agree. I I assume that you don't want somebody like Richard Nixon in office um, who who uh, destroyed his presidency through his lack of integrity. I mean, that, that that's a, that to me should be a relatively nonpartisan issue. And then the other half of what you're looking for is agreement on policy issues and. Uh, presumably, there's not going to be any candidate who is going to perfectly uh, reflect the kind of character you want or the kind of policies that you want. But I, I, I think in recent years, we've tended to look only at a policy agreement and w- we forget about the the uh, relatively nonpartisan part about what is their personal, uh, what, what's their personal characteristics, what's the nature of their family life and, that, you know, those, those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, to what degree did Christian theology shape or not shape the founding of America? I think that it uh, that that theology um, and and more generally Christian uh, morality uh, ideas about Christian morality really profoundly shaped uh, the founding. Um, in in particular, uh, their their the value that they attach to the need for virtue in a republic, as I said before, and then also um, their understanding that people are not naturally good. Um, that that was very widely understood uh, among the founders, um, and it and it comes out in some really foundational texts uh, in the 1770s and, and 80s. Um, I think particularly of uh, Federalist 51, uh, which is likely written by Madison, uh, James Madison, um, and and he talks about um, what he's talking about the nature of government and why you have checks and balances in in government, um, and and he says uh, you, you know you have to have, uh, you have to pit the interests of government uh, one against the other. So you, the different branches of the government, one, one against the other, and then the different levels of federal, state, and even local governments against one another. Um, because you have to assume that they will try to take all the power uh, and abuse the people governed um, if they have the opportunity to do that. Uh, office holders will do that. Um, and, and, and Madison says um, along the way, he says, what is government itself? But uh, one of the greatest commentaries on human nature. Um, if he, he says, if if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Um, and it, you could just, if if people were natu- 
actually good. You could just let them do manage their own affairs without government and without police. Um, but of course, we all know that, that you can't leave people alone uh, to just manage their own affairs or else society will de- de- descend into uh, chaos, violence, and anarchy. Um, and so I, I think that, that uh, you know, Madison at least is kind of distilling uh, principles that he had uh, learned and confirmed um, to him at Princeton uh, in the 1760s and 70s. Uh, he was a student at, of John Witherspoon's at, at, at Princeton. And of course, you don't you don't need specifically Calvinism uh, to to come to these kinds of beliefs. I mean, I think they're fairly generically understood uh, among Christians. But uh, Princeton in Madison's time uh, was a Calvinist institution, and and so there's at least that kind of filtering effect that Calvinism has, at, at least for Madison, on uh, what is the nature of humankind. And and I, I think Madison there is is advancing a sort of political version of an understanding of pretty grim human depravity. Uh, and that's why you need government and you better take account for that in government. Um, and so it's not, it's not sometimes uh, the more sort of Christian America writers will, will try to say, oh, look, you know, here, here's a Bible verse that they use to set up the constitution or something like that. I, I think most of that kind of thing is, is a stretch. Um, but when you talk about the level of worldview and assumptions about morality and assumptions about human nature, um, that's where the, the influence of, of the Bible and Christian theology comes in pretty strongly with the founders. I think that's a fantastic, very helpful answer. Um, in the past decade or so, we've seen fights about the Supreme Court and the intensity just seems to ratchet up, increase with every announcement coming out of the Supreme Court. How should Christians thoughtfully respond not only to the decisions of the Supreme Court, but in general think um, about the Supreme Court itself? Well, I, I think I'm struck by how strange our politics has become with regard to the Supreme Court, that uh, we choose presidential candidates um, in hope that they will nominate the sort of Supreme Court justices who then will often go on to play this really aggressive role on the court that, um, you know, what wasn't really even attended by the founders. I mean, the, the founders definitely just wanted the Supreme Court uh, to interpret the law and play a mediating role between uh, different branches of the federal government and in, in various kinds of federal cases. Um, the idea that that uh, judicial review has become sort of the, the main business of the Supreme Court was not uh, what the founders intended um, at, at all. And, and, and of course, that, that the power of judicial review is not uh, granted in the Constitution, um, at least not explicitly. It was asserted to the court by by the court uh, in the case of Marbury versus Madison in 1803 uh, that that uh, the Supreme Court has the power to uh, review the constitutionality of in that case uh, federal law um, and so you come down to today we we have uh, 50 years and more of um, a, a legacy of a very aggressive Supreme Court um, that it's, that now uses the Constitution and the amendments um, so often in a kind of legislative capacity where they're they're really making up laws for themselves. And so then that creates a situation where the voters uh, feel like they're indirectly uh, electing sort of quasi-legislators as judges um, and hoping that, you know, somehow maybe uh, this president that we're electing will then go on to make good choices about the Supreme Court 
forward and get who we want on on the court. It, it is it is grotesquely distended uh, it, from from what the founders in, originally envisioned for the court. So in some ways, my answer is just to lament um, that that we've gotten so far away from the original view of what uh, the federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular were were supposed to do. I I, I certainly uh, don't think that your average voter can do anything to get away from this system. I mean, because it's so well entrenched now that this is this has just become a common feature of American politics. And uh, you know, for for me, um, I, I I just appreciate, and this is just my own political view. I appreciate um, judges who see themselves as having a limited role, uh, see themselves as not trying to overturn society uh, and and remake society in their own image, but that they they are operating with restraint within the bounds of the Constitution, within the bounds of federal law, um, and that they don't see themselves as quasi-legislators. Um, you know that what whatever your your political persuasion, um, I, I guess I would hope that we could uh, affirm the value of judges who interpret law uh, and don't and don't make law. I think I think we're closer to being able to affirm that as a society than we are, um, you know, uh, being able to agree on the kind of partisan issues that uh, divide us over uh, over the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think that's a really really helpful answer. Um, there's you know, Dr. Kidd, there's a lot that we haven't talked about this this topic, and just as we wrap up, do you have a few takeaways for our listeners? Well, I, I do. Uh, I would recommend um, that uh, Christians uh, listening try to be uh, conversant with uh, their own history, especially religious history, because if we don't do that, I think I think we get into this sort of uh, pretty immature attitude about you know that nothing especially interesting or significant has happened in between me and Jesus, uh, <laughs> the time of Jesus. I mean it, that that as it's, it's as if we're just kind of uh, making things up as we go along, and 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 it's not true. It's not biblical. I mean we're we are uh, exhorted to pay attention to the cloud of witnesses, and that that is uh, obviously begins with the Bible. Um, but there are uh, Christians in, in the past, uh, George Whitfield just just being one of them, uh, who I think we definitely should know about, be encouraged by, be uh, chastened by their uh, the people's failings, uh, because all of our heroes of the faith are going to have uh, certain failings for sure, just like we do. Um, but but I, I guess I would just encourage people to try to to uh, make space for in our kind of entertainment saturated culture for uh, continued learning uh, in in uh, not, not just history, of course, but but uh, since we're on that topic, that that history I think can be a really valuable resource uh, and uh, storehouse for wisdom, and, and I think we, we should avail ourselves of that. That's that's really a wonderful answer, Doctor Kidd. Um, one last question: where, where can people go to find out more about your work? Well, any of my books are going to be available on Amazon.com uh, for sure. This textbook, in particular, because it's it's partly designed to be used in uh, courses, probably most obviously in uh, college courses, but I think it would also possibly work in a, a kind of AP U.S. History uh, level course. And if, if you're a teacher listening to this, uh, you can request an exam copy of the book at bhacademic.com. Uh, where, where can people also find you on like social media and those kinds of things? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and, <laughs> and on Facebook and on Instagram. At all those, I'm at Thomas S. Kidd. Wonderful, Dr. Kidd. Well, I want to say thank you for uh, your time today. I appreciate your thoughtful answers. You definitely have given us a lot, a lot to think about, and and uh, I appreciate that and and your work. So may Christ richly bless you, brother. Thank you, Dave. 
much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Servants of Grace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.